Welcome to Palm Vista Community Church as we begin our series in Peter's second letter to the first century Christians. We've entitled this new series, Growing in the Knowledge of God. Growing in the Knowledge of God. That is the title of the series, and the title of today's message is Knowing God from 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. So if you can begin to turn there, please. Let me ask you a question. Can you know God? Can you know God? And what does it mean to know God? And before we get to Peter's answer in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, we need to understand the background and the tone of this letter. It was written around A.D. 67. So we just finished the letter of 1 Peter, which was written around A.D. 62, So this is around A.D. 67, written by Peter, who was the pastor of the church in Rome. And he's writing to Christians in the first century throughout the Roman Empire. And he was writing to a church that was under extreme pressure, both externally and internally. Externally, the pressure was coming from an increasingly hostile government that soon would begin to kill the leaders of of this young church. And internally, the church was under pressure from arrogant and immoral false teachers who were beginning to teach what was not the gospel. They were beginning to mock the return of Jesus Christ. They were beginning to talk about grace that really wasn't biblical grace, but rather a grace to let people do whatever they wanted to do and live any way they wanted to live and do whatever they wanted to do in their physical bodies, and it really didn't matter. And it was wrong. And the church was under incredible pressure. Let me ask you a question. Are you under pressure today? Are you under pressure today as you look at our world and you realize there are governments, including ours, which are becoming increasingly hostile to the church, to the Bible, to what we hold dear, the faith that's been given to us. What will you do? How will you stand in the face of that opposition? Are you you under pressure to believe the very gospel that we hold so dear? Do you wonder, what what is the gospel? What is truth? How, How can I know God? How do I relate to God? And how does the gospel, how does grace relate to my life tomorrow morning when I get up? to go to work or go to school. Whether you work at home, whether you work outside the home. Is there pressure? Does the gospel mean anything? Or is this just a club that gathers to hear great music and great times of fellowship and our children are cared for and and we get our minds stimulated by some interesting facts about the first century? Does Does it matter? What is the gospel? Who is God? Can I know him? Is that pressure brewing in you? Do you believe that Jesus will one day return? And does that reality matter in how you live right now? Do you believe it? Or do you listen to a world that kind of subtly mocks it? Is there pressure? Are you under pressure? The very gospel for which Peter would soon give his life, probably within a year of writing this, Peter will be killed for the gospel, was under assault. And though a letter 
Second Peter is really talks, speaks more as a last will and testament. This is my last will and testament. As a matter of fact, if you were to come to my house, you would go into the garage area that we've converted into an office, you would find a file that is prominently displayed on one of the desks, and it simply says, when Al dies. Do you have a last will and testament? Have you thought about what those who you love will believe and do and live? What is the message? What is the legacy you will leave? that's the intensity with which Peter writes here. He knows he's about to die. He doesn't know exactly when. And at at his funeral, he wants a last will and testament read. And it's this letter. That's more, but it's this letter. Listen, when, when I die, and if you're there at my funeral, I've got instructions that, I, that I've written. First page here in my file, when Al dies, well, if you're reading this, then, you, then know I am in heaven with our Savior, and though you may weep, please do so with much hope and faith in our Lord. I am in a much better place, and God will care for you now that I'm gone. And what it is, it's just pages of instructions. Things I want said at my funeral. To my wife, if she survives me, where all the accounts are. (laughs) A little laughter, because everybody's like, oh, I wish you'd stop talking about this. But but we can't stop talking about it, because you know you're going to die one day. Jesus will return one day. What does that mean? What is truth? Who is God? What do you want your kids to hear and know? What do you want the church? Peter was concerned the church was being ravished, much like today. There were immoral, arrogant preachers who were preaching that that somehow Christianity is a way to gain a bunch of money and have this perfect life. And they were ravishing the church. And Peter knew he was about to die. And he wanted to give a, a message of the true knowledge of God. This is the theme of Second Peter, the knowledge of God, knowing God. This letter is not some meek and mild little letter. Oh, no, no, no. This letter, read it carefully. Enjoy this letter. Chew on this letter like a fine meal. Let, let, let the, the juices of this letter go into your mouth and, and cause your palate to explode with joy. This letter is written with intensity. It's almost combative. I mean, he's writing to Christians, but he's writing to them in a way that's very serious about knowing God. Knowing God. So, let's read what he has to say, shall we, church? Second Peter chapter 1. Verses 1 and 2. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord. These these are Peter's instructions on how to know God and what true knowledge of God is. When I was in Cuba, probably about the third time I was there. We took a long trip, un recorrido, through the entire island to visit all the churches that we were helping to serve by training their pastors in seminary courses. And man, I remember when we got to eastern Cuba. So Cuba is about 750 miles long. 
We started in Matanzas in the, in the west, and then we just started driving east. And if anybody's ever been to Cuba, you know about Cuba, the roads are impossible. And when we got out into places like Guantanamo, which, by the way, Guantanamo is beautiful. I, I thought I was in the mountains of North Carolina. It, it, it was unbelievably beautiful. A little scary driving in those mountains, but it was unbelievably beautiful. And we get to a city. We got to the city of Moa on the eastern tip of Cuba. And we knew there was a little church there, and we needed to find the church. But here's the deal. Back then, Cuba had no internet. No one had any smartphones. I couldn't, I couldn't pull out my iPhone and, and punch in the GPS and have Siri talk to me. Turn left here. And to my surprise, there were no street signs. There's nothing. So when we got into the city, we literally would roll down the window and Ruben would say, hey, psst, you come here. Do you know where so-and-so lives? Well, mira, si tú vas por allá, la mano izquierda, va a encontrar una mata. Hey, go up there, turn around, you can find a big tree. And I can't tell you how many wild goose chases. I mean, we had to factor in just lots of time to get lost in the city because guess what? If we didn't get accurate directions, we never would get to our destination. This is the accurate directions to get us home. And Peter tells, identifies himself as one you can trust, not just some guy walking down the street kicking a can outside of Moa who doesn't know what's going on. And here's some, some people he's never seen before. I was with Danny Jones, who's perhaps the whitest person I've ever seen in my life. I'm not exactly Cuban looking, although I am. And then we were with two Cubans. And I'm sure they were like, who is this man? He doesn't speak Spanish. Well, let's send him down to that tree by the river and from there, they'll figure it out. No, no, no. Peter, Peter is, is, well, look what he says about himself. Verse 1, Simeon Peter, a servant, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Oh, I like that. Church, I like that. Because Peter identifies himself immediately with one who is qualified to give the proper directions to the place of knowing God. He's the one that is qualified. Why? Because he's a servant. That, you know, the Greek word that is translated servant, it's a word called doulas. Doulas. And it has a range of meaning. One of the ways you can translate it as servant. You know what the other word is? Slave. So Peter, a servant and a slave of Jesus Christ is going to give us instructions on how to find him, how to know God. You know, just by by way of aside, notice that Peter doesn't start by identifying himself as a great apostle. He starts by identifying himself as a servant of Jesus Christ. How do you identify yourself? What's your true identity? Is it in what you do, some title you might have, an assignment you've been given, which are all wonderful assignments? I would argue that we should all identify ourselves as servants, doulas, douloi is the plural, of Jesus Christ. But then he goes on to say an apostle, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So as an apostle of Jesus Christ, Peter is uniquely qualified to give us directions. And the first thing that Peter says about knowing God is this. Knowing God means standing on Christ's righteousness. Point one. Knowing God means standing on Christ's righteousness. Peter is an apostle of Jesus Christ. That means he's authorized to give you instructions. If you, if you want to think of it this way, you know, he is the heavenly GPS. 
He's got, he knows how to get there. We can trust him. I'm an apostle. I've been made an apostle by God. I'm also a servant. I'm a fellow servant like you. I love Jesus. Jesus is my Lord. So I want to tell you how we get there. And the way that we get there is that we stand on Christ's righteousness. I love what he says in verse 1 there. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. So he's saying, yes, I'm a servant. Yes, I'm an apostle. But I'm just like you. We're on the, the ground at the cross is level. We all stand by faith in Christ alone. By God's grace alone. For God's glory alone. Through God's word alone. We're all equal here. And he's saying that faith... The way you know God is by standing on Christ's righteousness. Who better to preach that than someone who 34 years earlier tried to know God by his own righteousness and failed and fell miserably? See, Peter wrote these words roughly around A.D. 67, but he wrote them remembering what happened in A.D. 33. In the scriptural text that immediately follows what I just read for communion, read with me what happened that night. Matthew 26, verse 30. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, they being Jesus and his disciples. He had just led them in the first Lord's Supper together, the Last Supper And now they're walking out of Jerusalem into the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Listen to Peter. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Like so many of us, Peter understands and has the best of intentions when we say, Lord, I will never deny you in selfishness. Lord, I will never deny you by doing that sin that I know I shouldn't do. Lord, I will never deny you by doubting you and complaining against you and and, and trying to bring a case against you that you're not doing your job. Lord, I, though they all deny you, I won't deny you. See, he understands what it is to say that. And before the rooster crow, before dawn, he had denied him not once, not twice, but three times. Therefore, Peter is uniquely qualified to tell us true knowledge of God cannot begin with what you do, your righteousness. It has to begin with what Christ has done and Christ's righteousness. How did Peter know that? Because Peter understood and remembered Jesus' prayer for Peter that night. In Luke 22, verses 31 to 32, immediately after Peter said these things. Jesus says this to him. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Now that opens up a whole nother area to talk about. Satan is talking to someone and demanding Peter that night. Yeah, spiritual world's real. But Jesus is Lord. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Oh, friends, 
Jesus turned Peter so he might repent of falling and denying. And then he said, when I turn you, I want you to strengthen your brothers and sisters. It's exactly what he's doing in this letter. It's exactly what Peter is remembering in AD 67. And he's strengthening the first century Christians who are going to be tempted to deny the Lord, that are going to fall. They just are. And he's strengthening us this morning. Don't you see Jesus' words are fulfilled here? Peter continues to strengthen believers through this letter. And what's he saying? Knowing God means standing on Christ's righteousness, not your own. The same Lord Jesus Christ who prayed for Peter that night is the same Lord Jesus Christ that prays for you this morning. Scripture teaches us that Jesus intercedes for his people He's interceding for you that your faith would not fail. And listen, if you're sitting here and saying, Al, it's too late. It already failed last night. Fine. He died on the cross for that sin. And he's interceding by his righteous life so that you get back up and you say, okay, my faith failed. But my faith will not fail ultimately. I may fall, but my faith won't fail. There's a difference. Because Jesus assures it. His prayer, his will And he chose you is stronger than any sin, any Satan, anything. Knowing God means standing on Christ's righteousness, not your own. I love what David Helm says in his commentary on this text on the screen. Our ability to stand before God someday as rescued and reclaimed persons depends entirely on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Do you stand on the righteousness of Jesus Christ this morning? When you get ready for work on Monday morning and you think of the traffic and you think of the boss and you think of the the to-dos that you have sitting waiting for you on your desk, you think of the impossible demands on you, do you stand on the righteousness of Jesus Christ? By faith and faith alone. When, when you commute to school, whether it's in a school bus or whether it's in a car or whether for you, school is coming downstairs to the dinner table and beginning your work, do you stand on the righteousness of Jesus Christ? When, re- when relational pressures begin to mount in your life with family and friends and coworkers and, and those that you go to school with or just neighbors and, and those pressures of these relationships mount with the accompanying sense of failure and frustration and disappointment and expectations not met, there's a temptation to feel so lonely. Do you stand on the righteousness of Jesus Christ, embracing your primary identity as a servant of Jesus Christ. See, knowing God means standing on that righteousness. Knowing God means identifying yourself first and foremost as a servant of Jesus Christ. And that knowledge then leads us to experience, experience Christ's grace and peace. Point two. Knowing God means experiencing Christ's grace and peace. Knowing God is not less than doctrinal information. It's not less than intellectual knowledge, but it's more than that. It is not just the intellectual knowledge, it's the experiential knowledge. That's what God, the Holy Spirit, comes 
to do. He comes to reveal who Christ is and what Christ did for you on the cross, his redemptive works in his resurrection, in his perfect life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. But then God, the Holy Spirit, comes to then cause us to experience it. We are born again with that knowledge. It's not just knowledge that informs my mind so I win some sort of jeopardy you know, question, but it's knowledge that changes my life. It's knowledge that changes my life. The knowledge of God causes grace and peace to be multiplied to us. Look at verse 2. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. How? In the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Guys, this is the theme of the letter. How the knowledge of God, the true knowledge of God, of true grace, then causes grace and peace to be multiplied to us. This is the experiential knowledge of God. It's very personal. It's very relational. It affects both head and heart and life. It affects what I do tomorrow morning. Stay-at-home mom, it affects how you care for your children. Those that go to work tomorrow morning, it affects how you do your job. It affects how you relate to others. It affects how I handle the money God has given me, the people that I relate to. It's It's relational. It's intensely relational. You know, there's there's a saying that, you know, hey, it's not personal, just business. No, 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 no. It's very personal. It's as personal as you can get. That's the knowledge we're talking about. That's my goal in this series, that we wouldn't just know God intellectually. It has to be that. can't be less than that. But we would experience him together relationally so that it changes your life. Listen, the Bible calls that being a disciple. And then as you're a disciple, as you obey all that Jesus has commanded us, then you disciple the person next to you. And you disciple that person. And then other people are discipling us. So it makes a difference. We experience God. We just don't have a head full of knowledge about God, but we're actually being conformed into the image of Christ, who is God. This is the goal. Peter knows that soon he'll be gone. And he wants to ensure that the church remains strong and healthy by the true knowledge of God and his gospel in Christ, that it, we may stand the pressures of this world and the false views of God that are being purported and the opposition to Christ and his people that we are experiencing. And listen, it's worked. This was written A.D. 67. We're in 2016. A little less than 2,000 years. Man, God is faithful to his word, isn't he? The Holy Spirit is here to reveal his word. The knowledge that Peter is speaking of, it begins with conversion. And if you're not converted, if you do not know Jesus, as I mentioned earlier, then I appeal to you, repent and believe. I'd love to talk to you at the end of this message. But if you do have the knowledge of God in conversion, it begins there, but then it must grow. This book is about a growing knowledge of God that affects everything about me. Why? So that we can live in grace and peace. The people who've experienced the grace of God in the gospel, God making his enemies his friends, that's grace, totally by grace, are then people that experience peace. Even when around them there's turmoil. How do you experience this grace? How do you experience this peace? As we've mentioned, through the knowledge of God. Using the Cuba metaphor... If I'm looking for the corner of grace and peace, and it's an unknown city, I need to have some people give me 
right, accurate directions to get there. And the only place that will get you to the corner of grace and peace is the true knowledge of God, that you stand on the righteousness of Christ. There's going to be more as we study more of this book. But it begins there. Jesus is the foundation of this. All right, Al. So how then can I grow in my knowledge of God? Well, it's going to be by reading this word. You're not going to know God from your own thoughts. Sadly, that probably will lead you away from God. You try to create your own God and you will end up in misery. Just look around you. But here, how can you know him? It's got to be here. We've got to open this thing and read it. It's got to be our life. We've got to memorize it. We've got to talk about it with our children. We've got to talk about it with one another. We, we've got, this is it. This is the beginning right here. This is the knowledge of God through prayer. But it's the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, his presence with us that then deepens this knowledge so we can experience grace and peace together. He gives us this grace and peace. This peace will enable us to stand when all around us there is chaos. Do you regularly experience God's grace and peace when things in your world spiral out of control? Listen, that can be as simple and almost as silly as your phone not working. Right? You can freak out about that. It can be as international and as complex as the failed coup in Turkey, which is, which is not good news. Go study it. Uh, it can be as regional as reading today that in Cuba, they're starting a second special period. Cubans know what I mean. The first special period was when the Soviet Union fell and people starved. And now they're starting a second special period because there's no more money. Because Cuba lived off Venezuela's generosity when the oil prices were $100 a barrel. Now that they're not, Cuba's, Cubans are starving. You won't hear that in the news. As one Cuban said, the only thing that's changed, Al, is there's an American flag on the embassy in Havana. Repression there is as, as strong, maybe stronger as ever. And I just read an email from a young Cuban couple. He's a doctor. He's a dear friend. They now have three little ones. And he says, pray that we'd be faithful to the gospel when there's no food for your three little ones. When they live in a little house built on top of their parents' house, that if you looked at it, you'd think, oh, this is a utility shed. You would. He's got grace and peace. And he tells me of another young couple that I had the privilege of counseling and then now they got married and they have two kids and they're about to have the third. And he said, they're so excited. Trust me, that child will be born into a very difficult world. But they have grace and peace. Because it's not based on external things. It's based on Christ alone. Is that your experience? Or do you lose it because traffic is going to make you 10 minutes late? Or McDonald's ran out of whatever. Or for me, the worst tragedy of all, you get to Chick-fil-A after breakfast is over. And I was looking forward to that breakfast, you know, sausage with the biscuit. And and I'm being humorous here, but you get me, right? I know some of you are facing far worse things. Diagnoses from, from doctors, jobs that you might lose or underemployed. I get that. Marital situations, fam, I get that. But the grace and peace is ours through the knowledge of God. That's the hope. That's what Peter's saying here. If I try to figure it out on my own, if I try to stand on my own righteousness like Peter did, if I try to figure God out with my own knowledge, 
that instead of getting to the corner of grace and peace, I'm going to end up at the corner of self-righteousness and strife. We kind of visit both corners, don't we? We sometimes end up at the wrong place. Jesus is faithful. He's praying for us. that We get back to the corner of grace and peace. That's my prayer. This is where we live as God's people. This is where we live as the elect of God. This is where we live as the people that shout and proclaim with our lives and with our lips, Jesus is Lord. And if you desire to grow in the knowledge of grace and peace, in just a moment, I'm going to have the worship team come back up. We're going to sing, Come Thou Found. I'm going to ask you, if you want prayer, come on down. We purposely create time at the end of our sermon so that without any rush, you can receive prayer. For some of you, that's right at your seats. For others of you, come on down. We've got community group leaders. We've got uh, major ministry team leaders. We've got folks that if, if they see you, there's a crowd here, they'll come up and they'll pray with you. If you've never received Christ as your Savior, if you've never repented and God has never opened your eyes to your sin and he's calling you today, then and, and that's you. Come on down. Or speak to someone you came with and pray. The point is, God the Holy Spirit is here using God's word to teach us about God that we might be a people who walk in grace and peace. Let us pray. Worship team, would you join me up front? Father, I pray that there would be much grace and peace for your people this morning. Lord, that we would grow together as a church in the knowledge of God. Not a couple of superstars that can rattle off what the Greek means or understand every confession or every doctrine and can explain it perfectly. But as a group, we would all make it together. We'd cross the finish line together. Lord, we would cross the finish line together and know you intellectually understanding the doctrines, the great doctrines of your word, and experiencing the good of what it means to stand on the righteousness of Christ and Christ alone. Lord, if there are those here that do not know that, would you have mercy on them? Open their eyes right now. Those of us that need your grace, Lord, give them just the courage to come to, for prayer, to pray with someone right next to them. Lord, this would be a, a, little, a little picture of heaven in the next couple of minutes where your spirit is ministering, where we're doing the best we can to believe you and to care for each other and to be honest and open and humble. And you would give grace to those who humble themselves under your mighty hand and your awesome word. Father, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.